2: Here today, I have another one of our post-draft conversations, and this is a really interesting one. I've been looking forward to this for a while. There's been some new information that's come out, both on the lounge and on some video that the Ravens have produced with the the draft picks. But we're going to talk a little bit about Eric DaCosta's draft philosophy, what we learned post-draft, about how he applied that to this draft, very value heavy draft. And here to talk with with me about that is Jeff Brun. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Ken? Uh, loving this topic, been looking forward to this, and uh, let's let's jump right into it. But I want you to introduce it because this is your show idea.
3: Sure. Um yeah, well, I mean, this is just like such a fun year year because obviously the Ravens, they plan for this for years in terms of having all these extra, draft pit picks in the post-COVID dra- draft. And then on top of that, our picks were higher. But then what made it way more fun is they've been way more open than in the past. Um, they have a reputation for being very ga- guarded. And this year, um, they they opened a lot of the floodgates. Not all of them. And I'll, we'll discuss about which ones they didn't. Um, but with the Peter King access to round mm-hmm. four on Saturday... Um, that was kind of information they would have never given out in the past. And they even said a lot on their uh, team, the lounge uh, podcast that you mentioned, and then said some stuff in the pressers too. But so it just struck me that this year we learned so much more, and I sort of broke it into two categories. One, what we learned specifically about their draft board and positionings, which was much more than in the past. And I thought that that was interesting. Even more interesting than that, I thought, um, was the second to- topic i like to discuss. And that's their whole philosophy. And I think w- a couple things in particular were very, very surprising and goes against what a lot of fans were wanting and expecting. So,
2: Yeah, outstanding stuff. I mean, I... I, I, I... We'll talk about the board first, I suppose. here. the Ravens very secretive with their board. I've been at a sweet holder event that's that's done after the draft, and you can go in and see some very cool information they have, including who the red star players were. Hmm. Um In giving you, and that was really neat. Uh, wow. Unfortunately, the Chiefs one year, uh, and it was I think it was two thousand ten with their first four picks, they took a, Re- a Ravens red star player. <laughs> so it's I it's like. How did that happen? But anyway, that you can look at who the four picks were in that uh, in that draft. Uh, we saw the Cowboys. Uh, I think yes. Jay Jones made a you know <laughs> an enormous blunder. Uh, you know his coach is trying to tell him not to do that, but uh, in, in showing his own draft board, and then you see people enhancing and and magnifying this and and showing the picks,
3: which wasn't the first time that that's happened with the Cowboys. I remember one year. There was a press photo and it had their whole board in the background. Yeah. Although this year was even worse because it was done, be, it was published even before that f- first round. I mean, a lot of the players hadn't been picked who were still on the board. Um, so that was.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, w- it was after round one, I believe. And so yes. Ajabo, for example, was still on the board and he was in the high 20s for them, right? Correct. Correct. All right. So, so let's talk about what we learned about the Ravens board in this draft from what the Costa uh, provided us.
3: Okay. Well, let's just start from the top and go on down. Uh, the first thing that he revealed was that, I forget if he said that there were two or three play- players he was willing to, he had, they decided they were willing to trade up for, mm-hmm. but he said that they were all taken. And he said in the top three. So we can look at the top three, and uh, the one that sticks out there is Stingley was taken as number three. So there were a lot of fans who were clamoring to trade up for Stingley, and uh, it seems like Eric DeCosta might have been uh, on the same page on that one.
2: I think there were some thoughts that somebody would drop to 10. And looking at what the Ravens had in terms of draft capital, I don't think the Ravens really would have gone higher than that. I might be wrong, but they had, they would have had to trade pick number 76 to get from 14 to 10, and that's a lot right there.
3: Uh, I to totally agree. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have been – I didn't want them to trade up. Um, mm-hmm. I figured somebody was going to fall, but that was a little bit surprising. Thibodeau was the other person that people mm-hmm. had thought about trading up for. He was taken at five, so – I mean, I don't know if the cost on that one was being precise, but if he was, it sort of implies that um, Thibodeau wasn't a target there. Um, he, he said a lot about, um, and this was pretty straightforward, so I won't repeat too much of it, but he said his, um, one thing though, he always likes to talk about how he can predict what's going to ha- happen. I remember one year he said every year, I can always pick three out players and it's always one of those three guys who are taken. And, and he, you know, he's very proud of that. And, uh, and he's usually taught. And those have used be, I think he said that after the queen dra- draft draft, mm-hmm. uh, that would have been 2020. Um, and that's usually when they're picking the twenties. So this year should have been an easier year to pick. And this year he said, nobody expected Ham- Hamilton to fall um that was an interesting thing he said his prediction this year was that receivers would have come down and he actually they they thought there was one receiver they wanted to take at 14 I didn't follow the receivers this year because I didn't think it was going to be an issue so I don't know which one um it was taken before Olave but he thought the most likely scenario was that Olave falls to 14 and that the Ravens would have traded to somebody in the 20s and moved back into the 20s and picked up more more picks. He said that that had been his pre-draft prediction. And he actually wasn't far off because um, somebody traded up to, what was it, 12 to get Olave? Sounds Um, like it's between 8 and
2: 12. There were four receivers. it, it
3: It was 11. Somebody traded up to 11, and they paid a pretty high price too. Or maybe it was, oh, no, is it 12 that they paid the really high price, and that was for Jameson Will, Will Williams.
2: It's one of these things. It's the last one left of that tier of receivers. Uh, people saw it happening, and then they did pay a higher price at number 12. Those early, those early picks, and this is important to talk about because I, I talk about JJ value exchanges a lot, and it's usually still very good with – anything after about the first 10 picks but in the first 10 picks there's there's some real surprises up and down in terms of additional value or or reduced value of those selections and generally speaking teams are getting a little bit less this year anyway and trying to trade down with the with the really thick deep quality of the board instead of having it uh, you know the, the the top 4 or 5 players being so in, in a tier of their own say uh, relative to other years
3: the yeah the one that didn't—I think I saw a piece—the one that didn't follow the JJ very well at all was the Detroit for twelve. Mm-hmm. Detroit gave up a ton of value. They gave up, uh, what was it, two or three picks this year, and then um, a big pick next year too. And it was—I um, forget what the numbers were—but it was not. It was not an even trade or even close on JJ. But usually the other ones are um and i think that's ex- that's sort of what da costa was expecting he was expecting somebody to pull what detroit did who was desperate for that last re- receiver who he thought was going to be a lave
2: no let me let's pivot to the hamilton pick here because this is an interesting one one of the things we heard from da and by the way even after the draft, I don't take everything at face value. There's a whole bunch of organizational things. They are incented to hide. And in the case of Hamilton, you know, saying we'd have picked him no matter what, we did not entertain trade offers, blah, 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 would have been the natural way to go anyway. But he basically said um, when when we got to 14, we couldn't believe Hamilton was on the board. So we decided to take him. And uh, if anybody had been calling, we wouldn't have traded the pick. Uh, there's, there's, there was no circumstance under which they would have. So, uh, to me, I don't know whether that's hyperbolic or not. Uh, but, it, but they, I think they moved pretty quickly to trade to 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 turn in number fourteen. They wanted to call him first, but they but they did it. Um, do you think that the, he, he was largely being truthful with that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's ways of telling when he's being tr- truthful or not. So I I think it's hard to say on that one. Um, you know, he always wants to trade down and even he even has regrets. I mean, he did he didn't say nobody called and he did say like, oh, he he sort of did imply that he wanted to trade or his preferred thing would have been to have what he expected to trade down for Olave and pick up extra pick. They said, oh, but on the other hand, we did get this great player we didn't expect to get. And that just seems so greedy to me to even think about another option when Kyle Hamilton falls to you it reminds me of 2019 when he was when he said how after the draft he said it was awful to sit through and watch round two watch all these great players who we coveted come off the board and not have a pick and he said he said after that he said I will never do that again (laughs) And the reason why he didn't have a pick in round two was because he had gotten Lamar Jackson yep. with that pick he gave up in 2019. How could anybody have any complaints about the best value pick in Ravens history?
2: I mean, it, the best value pick in league history in, in yes. a while. I mean, you, you, you Tom Brady is in the sixth round is always going to be number one, right? But, uh, or that, Wilson that, in
3: 2012.
2: Yeah, they, that the uh, uh, the selection of of uh, Jackson is often used, in my opinion, incorrectly to say the Ravens had a great first round. No, they didn't. They had two picks in that round. They had a really bad pick. They passed on Jerwin James. They traded down a couple times. They did get some value that they used on some good players later. But then they ended up drafting Hayden Hurst, who was not a good pick, and they ended up drafting Lamar Jackson. You can't squish those two together and say, you know— we, we we had a great first round and, and have Jackson cover all other sins. It does, in fact, cover all yeah. other sins to get Lamar Jackson. Sure. <laughs> and, and that 2018 draft was, was remarkable in terms of the number of starting players generated from it. But I still don't like uh, covering a mistake with a uh, – whitewashing a mistake with a good pick.
3: Well, let me ask you then, Ken, um, if you had sat there in 2019 after round two – would you have been complaining about not having had the pick and saying, "I will never do that again"?
2: No, and 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 frankly, he doesn't really mean it. He'd trade it again in a heartbeat if he I had know. the same sort of deal. Uh, it was Ozzy's last draft, so in a mm-hmm. way, he inherited that thing. But uh, th- those guys have been making the picks together and have been very closely linked for uh, all of Ravens' history, really. Yeah,
3: on the so get back to your question, I mean, on the phone call thing, I, I don't think I have enough to say for sure whether he would have done it. I think, though, on some other points on Hamilton, I do try, trust him because it was specific. And the things that he said was, is in response to the Jordan Dana Davis question. And he said Davis was on the board. He said Hamilton was higher, at, but, and he said those we would have taken either of those two at 14 but there was a gap between them and it wasn't particularly close. Mm-hmm. And meaning that Hamilton was clearly at the top. Jordan Dan Davis, they would have been happy with at 14, but there was a big gap between them. But, and, but then he gave a an, and so given how specific that is, I don't think he was misleading. And then he followed it up by saying, if both of those guys had been gone, I don't. We would have been in a in a dilemma, meaning that there was clear top ha, ha, Hamilton, a big drop, but still a good player with Davis, and then after that off of a cliff, which was exactly how I saw. Well, I actually saw Jermaine John, Johnson as being in the tier, but I think that there was a lot that we didn't know as fans. Otherwise, he would have dropped to twenty six. Right. Um, but so I. So I trust him when he's that specific.
2: He, it, it seems to me like if the, if him, first of all, once they got to 12, they know they're, sorry, once they get to 13, they know they're getting one of those two guys. The question was at 12, that's the last time he has to possibly worry about it. And then at 12 was was the receiver. So if Williams had instead fallen, I think it was Williams drafted at 12, if he had instead fallen to 14, they might have been right back in the position where they trade a receiver and didn't go get, move back into the 20s and pick up additional value. Uh, I, I presume there would have been a team willing to do that. And yet, I think the other thing that was not spoken, they kept the Brown trade secret all that time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the Ravens wouldn't have taken the receiver at 14.
3: So, DeCosta, DeCosta he addressed that speci- specifically. And he said, um, he was asked that on the lunch, and he said, there was one of the receivers they would have taken had he fallen. But he said the reason why they kept it a secret was because they thought that there was a good chance that Chris Olave would fall to 14 and that another and that a team in the 20s would trade up to get him from us. And he said specifically, we didn't want the Brown trade known because had it been known, then we feared that somebody would jump in, that, that teams would predict that we would take lave, which wasn't the case, and they would have jumped up a slot or two in front of us in order to get lave, and we would have missed the opportunity to get that trade, trade down and pick up the extra capital.
2: Don't know if I believe that. Uh, I, okay. I think as a, as a Ravens fan, I think that most of us, you know, going into this with the assumption that wide receiver, they probably weren't going to draft anyone in the first round or second round, perhaps. Uh, that that it was it, it was actually a good thing that the receivers were going. The Ravens sent that exact message, obviously, that it's a good thing the the receivers are going. Um, and they never never talked at all. I mean, keeping the keeping the trade secret is the easiest way to to tell the rest of the NFL that you don't need a receiver not that you're looking for a receiver to drop to 14 so you can then trade him down that's just it's it's too Mm -hmm. convoluted for me so
3: what about the fact that he said that there was one receiver who they would have taken who they coveted
2: it's it's interesting I I obviously I don't know who it is um you get a lot of double talk after the fact so you know sure it could have been it could have been any of the guys between 8 and 12 Mm -hmm. but uh, the, the thing that it um Uh, It it, it harkens to is when the Ravens drafted Stanley in the Tunsil gas mask year Mm
3: -hmm. that
2: um, the talk after the draft was all very careful about, you know, he was the highest guy on our board when we picked him and they would not they would not answer the question directly before the gas mask was tonsil higher on your board. Damn it. Than Roddy Stanley, they would not answer that directly. And I think that means he probably was, uh, it would not have been unusual for, for him to be higher, but, uh, uh, you know, they, they they're just very careful after the fact with hurting the feelings of the players they did draft.
3: Yeah. I, I think it's become pretty clear afterwards that there was a player that coveted, more and did try to trade up for with the Cowboys and that was Jalen ran Ramsey in that year mm-hmm. um 20 on pick 25 uh, he didn't he hasn't revealed a lot about the board in that spot um, we don't know whether he still would have picked Lina, Lina, Linderbaum at 23 or if he mm-hmm. would have gone with with Elam I thought the only interesting thing to come out about that was I thought it was interesting on the Jerry Jones on the reveal, Linderbaum was exactly number twenty-five on their board, mm-hmm. which means had they picked, I'm I'm sure they wouldn't. Have, I'm sure they would have gotten better than twenty-five on their board, but it was sort of interesting how that lined up
2: weird situation with the centers this year because linderbaum was to me a, a slight overdraft at 25 not a huge jump mm-hmm. um, zion johnson uh was the best center in this draft for my money M- much more powerful human being uh you know he's he hasn't been playing center at in at, at boston college but he's going to be fine in the nfl at the position then you have a lot of other guys that were drafted later who are going to be converts to the center position. So Lindemar one of the only yeah. true centers. So you you, you have uh, uh, Strange, who was drafted at 29 in the most weird and uneconomical pick uh, <laughs> of, I've ever seen Belichick make. And then you had uh, Fortner went early. I think he went at 51. And I mean, he might have gone at 65. Who, who went at 51? Cam when... Jurgens of Nebraska. Yeah. So, so all of these centers were going early. But the guy who lasted a long time is the guy who's going to convert, I believe, from tackle to center. He could also convert from tackle to guard. And that's Zach Tom of Wake Forest. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved for the Ravens to, instead of getting armor and um, Linderbaum, to instead flip that and get Elam Elim and uh, and uh, Zach Tom. I thought mm-hmm. would have, would have made a better probable combination for this and I, I i have not seen that really addressed by the ravens at all but zach tom was kind of an outlier in that he fell among center converts relative to other guys who were all picked much higher than expected
3: mm-hmm. well that's actually a good uh a se- segue into the next reading reveal and this one i definitely tr- trust because it's doing the opposite of what you would think his motive is to do is to probably his own play, player. It's admitting that there were some guys that they coveted and didn't get. And he said that in both rounds two and three, um, they had wanted to get a corner, and those corners were taken earlier be, mm-hmm. be, before them. So I looked at the board. So for round two, I think that's pretty obvious. Um, the two guys taken shortly before Ojabu. Uh, were Andrew Booth and Kyler Gor- Gordon. I think the, when you look at uh, Travis Jones' pick at 76, there was no corner. The The corner taken before him was all the way back at 68, and that mm. was Martin Emerson. So that comment seemed a little more strange to me. And then the only one before that was back in the second round, Cam Taylor Britt. So I don't know what to make of that.
2: The the guy I think that they might have really wanted is McCreary. Um, I I don't know how many people thought he would go as early as he did, and he went at thirty five to Tennessee. But uh, but I I think he was high on my board, and I, I would have guessed hmm. that they would have they would have gone for him. Kyler Gordon was too. Andrew Booth was Andrew Booth. I thought could have gone in the twenties if it wasn't for the injury concerns. Maybe even higher than that. So mm-hmm. uh, you know they they uh, not. Entirely a dissimilar situation for Booth and Ajabo. Um, I think Booth's injury is probably a little less significant than Ajabo's.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, One other reveal on the corner, um, he didn't seem super high, at least not a person who wasn't under consideration at 14, he, he implied was McDuffie. Um, he gave, uh, one of the interviewers some flack for making that pick, uh, Mink had picked Jordan Davis and, um, the other one had predicted McDuffie and he shook his head at McDuffie and said, um, the Davis was, a was a better prediction. Um, Okay, so now for the really interesting stuff. I mean, the round four stuff, it all came out in the King article, which was just Mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, And he added a little bit to that in the interview afterwards.
2: Great piece, by the way. If you haven't read it, make sure you go out and look for the Peter King Ravens fourth round. Just stick that into Google. You'll you'll get it. It's a it's quite a long list. It doesn't give away too much in terms of the secrets of what the Ravens board was. I think that's probably a condition. And he might have even got to they might have gotten to read the article before it went out. Uh, but it gets into a lot of you know what the Ravens were really thinking about in terms of that fourth round. Absolutely fantastic inside piece.
3: It really was. And I mean, Peter King is great. He, I think there was a year or two when he tried to get the Ravens to do this, and they were like, no way. And so that was a big surprise that they let him in and gave him all that access, except to one thing that I'll talk about later. later. They didn't allow him to report on, but they certainly gave him a lot of access to the board, and especially on the Calvin Austin thing, um, which we'll discussed but um, one of the things that came out, and I forget if it, if it was in King, I think it was actually in the interview afterwards. Um, he started off Saturday mo- morning, and the top three players on their board at the start of that day, and I believe him on this, were Fa Lele as one, um, uh, Amor Dan Davis as two, and Kolar as three. Mm. They said he said that he got. And he didn't say we got our fourth guy. So that's what makes it a little more more credible to me. Um, That the big issue was that he was predicting a, um, a run on the corners. And corner was a bigger area of need. And so he had thought about perhaps, and we'll talk about philosophy later, Later, he had thought about perhaps going with a more Dan Davis with the first one, since he was more likely to be gone. But then he decided to stick with the board, and there were some corners who were taken between those two picks. But um, he got a lot of lucky, and a more Dan Davis wasn't one of them. But I do really, since he was so specific and not saying our top four guys were that, he's very specific in saying our top three. I don't think he was lying about that. I think those three guys were one, two, three on the board. On I mean, the fourth one.
2: guy they drafted was Stout, right? Was so, Stout. You know, so, I wouldn't expect that he would not have to be on the at the top of their board. On there, he was. just a one man. He was the only punter they had on their board. And yes. I guess he. I guess he was trying to peg it out, and he he, he kind of guessed someone else was gonna was gonna take a punter in between. Their fourth and fifth picks in the sixth in the fourth round, which is that is an an extreme demonstration of liking that punter.
3: It it is. It also reflects some intelligence. Um, and there was a follow up by Peter King in this week's column. I don't know if you saw it, which added even more. Well, first of all, we know that um, the second punter was taken a few picks afterwards, which may or may not. We may or may not have started a run on the corners, but Eric DaCosta doesn't think so. He's um, he said that he had specific knowledge, and he wouldn't say. And this was with King. He wouldn't say how he got it, but um, he knew that there was a team that coveted Stout, and um, and he was predicting Stout to be taken right after that after that pick. What came out in the Peter King, um, this, not the one from last week, um, but the one from three days ago, he said um, an NFL executive, a GM, after reading his column a week ago, wrote to him and said he got sh- shivers because when the Ravens were on the board picking at 130, that GM was writing a text to DeCosta asking if he would trade the next pick, pick 139. And that GM's plan was to take Stout. Hmm. And then as he was finishing the text and before he hit send, he saw that the Ravens pick was in and it was the guy who he was offering to to trade the Ravens for in order to get at 139. So we know for sure... He, at the very word, at the very least, out uh, would have been picked at 139. Um, DeCosta seems to think he would have been picked, what was it, three picks after when the next one? 133
2: for when Camarada went to the uh uh Tampa Bay.
3: Yeah. So that was so in that one, that wasn't following that was his one pick um that wasn't just a straight best player event available it was a very strategic place and based on intelligence of the board and you know it's interesting because I pay a lot of attention to absences I'm actually I'm a I'm a I'm a historian and one thing Mm -hmm. that we learn in graduate school is um, you analyze what you see and sometimes the most interesting thing that you will see is an absence Mm -hmm. so when I look at all these things that DaCosta is uh, is uh, is explaining and revealing to everyone, is really fascinating. But I also notice a couple of absences, a few things that he will not re- reveal, which tells me that it's not just that he has diarrhea of the mouth. It's it's that he's strategic, and the things that he's putting out into the open are things that he thinks. He doesn't have any marginal advantage on. He does things, think that there are some things that give him a marginal advantage and those he's not going to say a word about. And one of them was how he collected intelligence about the punter. And mm-hmm. I'm not even going to speculate about, about what that may or may not be, but that was kind of interesting, I thought.
2: All right. So uh does that take us pretty much through the fourth round in terms of what we learned, or is there more from the King article we should be going over?
3: There's the Calvin Austin. That was pretty oh, yeah. st- straightforward. I don't um so I'll I'll summarize unless you want to, Ken. Um so um Calvin Austin, so Peter King he reported that when we did the next pick, I believe at one after Stout 139, uh, mm-hmm. the player who we wanted was Calvin Austin, the receiver. And then he was taken by Pittsburgh two picks early. And, you know, and back to the issue of credibility, this is one of the reasons why I see a lot of this information is credible because that's not something that's to their advantage to let it be known. Right. Especially to um, uh, Steelers, to, li- to likely as well as the Steelers, but to li- to likely also the tight end who we took in that in that pick. So the fact that he revealed that makes me trust some of the other things a bit more because that was you know that wasn't to our benefit to let the Steelers gloat on that pick and let likely know that. We coveted Calvin Austin more than him at 39.
2: Right. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's, that's true. And you, you, you hear a lot of the back and forth in the Peter King article about whether or not to take Austin at 130, 130, 131, yeah. whichever the pick was. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, they eventually decided against it and, uh, and they, it did not work out for them. They did not get both players as they, as they kind of hoped to do. But, uh, then they they came to the last two picks of the fourth round.
3: Yeah, um, yeah. I just want to say on the Calvin Austin thing. I I mean, I think everything in that is true. Obviously, um, I think you know it added some drama to the story that I think could be easy to overblow a bit. Like, oh, this was a crushing defeat for the Ravens. We lost our guy yet again. It's like Juju Schuster Smith all over again, or this or that. The fact is, I mean, yes, we wanted him in that, but if we had really wanted him, we had three picks earlier in the round. So it's not like you know, I think it's described as a gut punch somewhere. A gut punch is if you wait fifty picks f- yep. for for a guy and don't get him. It's not if you had three chances in the fourth round to get him, and that's not that's not the same thing.
2: Uh, here, I would interpret it maybe even slightly differently. Is that? Peter King needs to have it, uh, it be a story about value and gain, but also loss and, 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 and offsetting yeah. things that happened to make it a more interesting story. So you mentioned the drama, but I, I, you know, I think King needed to make that into something, maybe something that it wasn't in terms of that. I mean, the Ravens had a slam dunk of a, four, of, of a fourth round, if they're truly being honest, that their top three players on yes. the board, they got all three of them. And then they they got the punter that they wanted and and you know beat other teams out of him. If if the cost of that is Calvin Austin, I think that they uh, you know those four picks will certainly make up for for that loss. And maybe Stout alone because it's it's a it's an interesting one. We'll talk, when when we get get back together to talk about philosophy, we want to talk about that one in particular. Okay. So, anything to say about about either the end the, the last two picks of the fourth round or about the Beatty pick? Is there any any?
3: No, I don't think that we um, we learned a lot less about those. I think I mean, well, I mean, obviously, we learned about the likely pick that he was the backup, and then the little bit of drama on the Beatty thing that he couldn't reach the player. I thought, well, actually, the one thing that really surprised me was, you know, so the so on Beatty. They usually have, I, I wasn't aware of this, they usually have the phone number of the player and they call the player before they make the pick. And the thing was, they had a phone number and it was actually of the agent. And then they were trying to reach the player, Beatty. This was in the sixth round. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a moment, as Peter King described it, a moment of drama when they couldn't re- reach him. But um, the big thing to me that really surprised me was that DaCosta said at that time, he said, if I can't reach the player, I don't pick him. And he would have moved on to somebody else. And I think that was actually on the film, too, or maybe he said it in the interview, but that just shocked me. So like there needed to be that that tangible confirmation, almost like just to make sure the player is still alive you know, um, he had to speak to him or he was going to pick the next person.
2: That's, that's, uh, interesting. I did not hear that, but that's a, uh, that's a very good one. Well, Jeff outstanding stuff here. And I think just going through like what you can read in the tea leaves, from all the information that's given out really kind of some of the coach and GM speak that comes out. It's, it's always fascinating to me. A lot of times during the season, you know, I don't hang around even for interviews at camp sometimes because I don't think the information is all that useful. It's always,
3: especially when it's, when it's the head coach, when it's Harbaugh. (laughs) Yeah.
2: The coordinators have generally been pretty um, tight lipped as well. Like uh, Marty Morningweg had, had trouble putting together a whole sentence. Sometimes he, he would he would like ramble and, and and be. But but other other coordinators have had, you know, a, a very closed way of doing things. The only guy who was a little bit open was Dean Pease. He he gave you more than mm-hmm. other people did uh, about what was going on. He'd even react to something if you asked him a question about defense uh, uh, that he didn't like. So he was he was much more of an interesting
3: interview. The guy who is the most interested is the most worth paying attention to the, uh, because he's the least fit enough, f- filtered is Steve mm-hmm. Um he, You know, he doesn't usually mislead, he, you know, and he'll sometimes reveal some things that are surprising, but I don't think he misleads in a strategic way in the way that DaCosta and others do i you know actually there was one thing there um that i think makes this draft a little bit surprising um just thought of it this morning um was that before the draft he he was interviewed and he said i'd be happy if this is an all defensive draft draft if we take all defensive plan- players every one of them i will be very ha- happy i think the and that actually makes the biggest surprise of this draft is we split 50-50 on, well, 50-50 and one. Um, yeah. Five offense, five on the defense, and one on special teams. And that's that's not what Bashadi was expecting. I'm sure he's not angry, but.
2: I, I he didn't mean that. I mean he 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 really he's no, he's, no. he's conveying emotionally his frustrations with the defense last year and saying this is. I go back to when Lamar Jackson was drafted, uh, Bishotti I believe after the 17 season was the only one who was involved in the postseason State of the Ravens address and that was something that normally they had all the big four were always on. They had DeCosta and and uh, Harbaugh. And Ozzy and Bishotti. Oh no, I'm sorry, it's Cass, not the Costa, because it was back then. Um, so they had Ozzy uh, uh, as a GM. And when they did that, um, you know, it was an interesting, you know, difference of perspectives. When they when they talked to Bishadi alone, the main topic was, Are you gonna fire John Harbaugh? And he said, you know, I I thought about it, but but I was not inclined to do so. Kind of thing and he was, he was, i think that was fairly straightforward in that is he said did i think about it yeah i did of course i think about it every year or, or you know I, I it's under consideration anytime you miss the playoffs a couple of consecutive seasons but the the other interesting thing he did that year is he referred to a meeting that had happened in jupiter with his all of his major lieutenants yeah. and he basically was leading people down a different rabbit hole in terms of where the Ravens would be drafted. But the Ravens, I believe, from that meeting had already decided they were going to move on from Joe Flacco and draft a quarterback in the in the draft. Mm-hmm. There were a number of names. They probably liked Lamar Jackson at that point. They didn't know if they could get him or not. But there were other guys that they also thought they could get in that particular draft and that they were probably going to spend a high, a high pick on a quarterback. Um, I know before the draft, they did actually tell Flacco that was the case. So uh, it was it was just interesting. So I I, just for the sake of argument, I would say that Bishotti is perfectly capable of the same kind of misinformation or not complete information or, you know, way of slanting a certain viewpoint that uh, that most of the other uh, senior Ravens people are.
3: But there was a certain emotion to it that I think can be trusted. That he, yes, and I think, and you know, he does pay a lot of attention to the draft, and I think you know he does he does do a lot of math with the draft. It talks mm-hmm. about his standard de- deviation and stuff. So I think he was predicting a more. I would trust him that he ex- wouldn't have been surprised had it been weighted toward the defensive side, and I yeah. kind of expected that too, just given the yep. Ravens, and given this draft class. Uh, so looking back on it, I am a little bit surprised that it was 50-50 and not weighted toward the defense.
2: Yep. They got they got two offensive linemen. I think everybody projected that. I think people did project sure. two of a tight end, a running back, and uh, a wide receiver, and they, that's exactly what they uh, – they got three. They got two, two tight ends and, and a wide receiver – sorry, and a running back. So that's a little bit uh, – a little okay. bit unexpected. But uh, but anyway, uh, Jeff, I've really appreciated this conversation. This is a great review of the draft. And we're going to we're going to have you on for another show to talk philosophy because this is kind of running a little long. But this is this is just the kind of stuff I, I love to really analyze coach speak on this level. And you've done a really good job. it. tell people where they can talk football with you.
3: Uh, I don't really put out a lot of stuff. Um, you can find me in disability history journals, <laughs> but I'm not talking a lot of football there.
2: Are you uh, are you uh, on Twitter at all?
3: I am on Twitter. Um, to be honest, I don't even know what my handle is. I don't predict, okay. sometimes I'll know your comments. From on show. That. <laughs> it's Jeff something. Um, I'd have to look it up.
2: Um, <laughs> this, is a, this is the first time somebody has not known their Twitter handle when they're uh, when they're on the show. But Jeff, anyway, we appreciate you being here. Uh, I'll try and put that information out with your uh, with the uh, tweet I do to promo the show. Other folks out there, if you're looking to be on a Film Study short, hit me up with a DM on Twitter. I really value these kind of things. Jeff did this uh, uh, for me, a wonderful opportunity to get together with a new viewpoint, exactly the kind of material you want, something that we can dig in fairly deep in anywhere between 20 and 40 minutes is good. Uh, and uh, keep the topic narrow if you can in order to do that. Jeff, thanks a lot for being here.
3: Oh, I enjoyed it, Ken. Thank you.
2: And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study.